What would you call someone who was born in Mumbai, moved to Australia, lived in London for a while, studied at the London School of Economics, consulted all over the world, was an economic guru? You probably wouldn't call them a master storyteller, but that's exactly who our guest today is. She set up with the very first storytelling for corporate school in Australia. She has a depth of knowledge and is a very, very smart woman, and I look forward to having her on the show and learning more about the art of storytelling. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the Get More Success Show. He's a guy who never measured a man's success by the size of his wife. It's showtime. 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 And now, here is your host, Warwick Merry. Welcome back to another episode of the Get More Success Show. I'm your host, Warwick Merry. Now, with me today, I have someone who is a storytelling guru. That doesn't mean that she goes to the local library and sits there with the kids. She sits around board tables with the big kids. She's the world's only economist who's turned storyteller and is consistently voted among the top business storytellers globally. And she works with people all over the world, has lived all over the world, and I'm thrilled to have her today. You mean in I do, sorry, Yamani Naidu. I've got to get that right. We had a whole conversation to get the name right and I got it wrong. Yamani Naidu, welcome to the show. Lovely to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Warwick. Lovely to be here. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, um, I start off the show with the same question for everybody, and that is, how do you define success? Now, I will note in your new book coming out, Story Mastery, you have a statistician lecturer who used to shout that relationships plus results equals success. <laughs> yes, or are you, do you do it a little bit differently? It's slightly differently. I mean, of course, you know, relationships are the core of being human. Um, your question actually made me think quite a bit because I think as you go through life, you recalibrate your definition of success. So quite often when we're young, you might buy into a conventional conventional view of what success is, which might explain why I studied economics. Um, and then later, I think, you know, you forge, you, you, you forge your meaning. And also, I often think of it as, as always quite shifting, like the tectonic plates in your world that shift. Um, I, I had a couple of thoughts. First of all, I thought for me, success personally is about, and for everyone I know, is about fulfilling our potential. So it's, you know, having the choice and the ability and the privilege to do that. But I also, just at a more basic human level, I often find that for me, successful people are people who are happy in their skin. So there's something about that, Warwick. So we're constantly in a world with, you know, there's all this push and there's all this hustle and there's all this energy around stuff. And so rarely do you meet anyone who's, even if they have the trappings of conventional success, are happy in their skin. And for me, that's sort of a couple of things, having an abundance view of the world. So having just this abundance, generosity, in the way you, you view the world. And I often think that for me, success is also about compassion. And it always starts with self-compassion. And this doesn't mean we're not high achieving individuals and we don't have targets, and we don't have goals. We have all of that. But, and also just compassion for other people whether it's the people we're working with or the, you know, the, the homeless person on the street and compassion for the planet. So it's, it's quite a broad definition of success, uh, but you get more nuance, I think, 
and it's such a uh, it's it's sometimes it can feel ephemeral. It can be like you're trying to nail jelly to a tree, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm very interested to hear of an economist <laughs> abundance mentality. So how, how, does, how does that work? <laughs> sort of known for just trust there'll be enough for everybody. <laughs> how, how do you, you balance the, your economist brain, which storytelling has got to be there with your abundance mentality? Because initially, a lot of economics theory was based around scarcity mentality, you know, and supply and demand and all of that. There was some seminal work by Amaratya Sen, um, who also won the Nobel Prize for his work in economics. And that sort of shifted my worldview, perhaps for a lot of other people as well, where he said, there's enough food to feed the entire world. So, so much of our food scarcity and poverty is created by politics and power. Uh, so it's very much the systems and infrastructures that holds back that potential. Um, but just abundance in your personal life, you know, having that generosity with people and um, always say promoting new speakers, uh, you know, uh, putting a good word in, that sort of stuff, just daily abundance. So I think there's a lot of push and a lot of hustle and a lot of self-promotion, a lot of positioning, you know. You know? <laughs> uh, and then always, Warwick, we know that, it's so much easier when someone just recommends you and your work. Then life flows and we create that. We create that flow in abundance. So you're now the master storyteller, um, but that's not where you started. You started out in economics and you lived all over the world. Give me just the, the three or four minutes <laughs> of where, you, where you've lived, what you've done, because you're <laughs> from Mumbai, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Mumbai, in Bombay. My father was a banker. He worked for the Reserve Bank of India. So he was both in the government and a banker. My mom was a teacher, older brother and sister. So he studied in Bombay, uh, went to a convent school, St. Xavier College. Um, I then lived for some time in Sydney, where I worked for the Tea Board of India. And then I won a scholarship to go to the LSE, to the London School of Economics. Uh, and that sort of, you know, just opened up my my mind and my world, a whole lot of opportunity. And then I've lived, traveled, worked in various parts of the world and eventually fell in love with someone who lived in Melbourne. So I married and I moved to Melbourne many years ago and Melbourne is definitely home today. But like you, my work just takes me all over the world. And we feel, I feel both deeply local, like I'm very grounded in the suburb I live in Melbourne, in Hawthorne, like, you know, when I'm not traveling uh, for work, like you, uh, you, you literally, I've lived within, I call it the village of Hawthorne, you know, <laughs> just my gym, my coffee shop, my home and all my friends and uh, family. Um, but yeah, I, I forgot the question. <laughs> you were like asking for a snapshot. <laughs> so how did you go from a, you know, senior economist, studied the London School of Economics to master storyteller? What, yeah. what? What happened? <laughs> I worked a lot in corporate Australia, like in senior leadership positions, not in, not, not in economics. And I used to always be frustrated by how data and logic doesn't persuade people. You know, like the numbers and the facts, and here they are, and why we can't execute strategy, and why people can't embrace the initiative and get on board. And I was so frustrating. And you know what we do with the data, which is logos, the logic, it doesn't work. We give people even more data. You know, we drown them. We think more data on the slides, more PowerPoints. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Another 30 emails. And, and I was always frustrated. And I realized that this was universal. It was very much all what all leaders struggled with. On a long haul flight, I got a book. Somebody gave me a book by Stephen Denning. 
He had written an article in Harvard Business Review on storytelling, and he worked for the World Bank. Um, and he'd just written a book called The Leader's Guide to Storytelling. And my, it said to business storytelling or storytelling. And my economist brain just recoiled at those words. But I was so hungry that I grabbed the book and I devoured it on this long haul flight. And as soon as I got off, I rang all these, all the leaders, so many leaders I knew. And I asked them about storytelling. And they all said two things. They said, we know good leaders tell stories, but we don't know how to. And this is also the time when Obama was being elected as president and people were talking about the power of his storytelling. And I immediately started researching and I found that nobody was offering it in Australia or overseas. Mm. And, you know, Warwick, they say the best way to learn something is to teach it. So I always, <laughs> I always wanted to work for myself. So I thought this is such a great opportunity. This is such a niche in the market. And no one's filling, you know, fulfilling that niche. So I co-founded the first company in Australia, and I think possibly in the world, that was dedicated just to storytelling. And for about 18 months, we just had to educate the market. Like people were just like, storytelling, how are we going to do that? You know, we're all very stitched up and tight in business. This is the boardroom. We have no stories in here. It's facts and figures and hiring and firing. Exactly. And they're very happy for motivational speakers to use stories. But, you know, God forbid our leaders, you know, inspire through stories. But mm -hmm. we're very lucky within 30 days of joining, of launching the company, National Australian Bank became our first client. So some of the leaders had just come back from overseas and the buzz there was storytelling, storytelling. And they Googled and they found only us offering it. So very humble, that first workshop you run, you know, many years ago, you almost blush with shame now when you think about it. <laughs> but it's that whole iterative mentality. You put something out and then you get better. And then you come to a point where through your clients, you learn, you grow, you yeah. age, and you develop your own IP. Yeah, great. And, but stories have been part of your life as well, haven't you? I see um, on your website and in your book, the story about the... 10 words of <laughs> that story. That's a, that's a fabulous little story. Yeah. And can you believe, Warwick, I hadn't thought about it for many years. And then suddenly when I... <laughs> Isn't it? Like there are stories that we're told as kids, either in school or by family or by friends. And then there are stories that we learn in business that, that stick with us. Like for me, one story that stuck with me and I heard it, it was in 1991, some, a florist delivered some flowers and on, on the back of the card it said, a leader should take more in their fair share of the blame and less than their fair share of credit. And, and like that little vignette wow. stuck with me for so long and it was just on a florist card. <laughs> Which is so lovely, it's so humbling. You should absolutely use that. And this is the biggest challenge we have. People think, oh, I've got no stories. Because they always think a story should be something epic. It has to be sailing the world solo, scaling Mount Everest. But it's the small everyday stories, you know, shopping at Bunnings, you know, <laughs> taking your kids to school. Or, yeah, all of that is so relatable. Yeah. So tell me your, 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 ten, your ten word, two letter story. <laughs> so, you know, I always I often start with this. Uh, so when I was 10, I had a wonderful teacher called Miss Asha, and she's actually read to us. And she came in one day and said, I want you to think of a sentence that has 10 words, and each of those words could only have two letters. And the sentence had to make sense. And we tried and we tried, and we came up with nothing. And then she wrote up on the board, if it is to be, it is up to me. If it is to be, it is up to me. And so that day, Miss Asha influenced a classroom full of children to think differently about life. 
and not just in that moment, but for the rest of our lives. And Warren, just looping back to your first question, I think that was when perhaps that first seed of what is success was planted. Because, you know, she says, if, it's, if it is to be, it's up to me. So I, I think in some way she empowered us all. She gave us that choice. That, um, and it's also a privilege, you know, we're in a privileged position where we can make these choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I just when I read that I thought oh what a what a cool little thing that and I think this is with stories we don't realise the kind of impact they have until down the track we never know what people will pick up from some of our stories and then recite later and pass that story on to their other colleagues. Um, what have been you know you've been running these workshops and working with corporations now for about ten years or so. What have been some of the barriers to why people say, oh, but I can't do stories? And you've, you said before, oh, but I haven't got this big epic Ben-Hur kind <laughs> of saga. What are some of the other barriers about being able to deliver stories? The, the, I think the, the seminal barrier or the fundamental barrier is people feel either you've got it or you don't. They feel, you know, there's something like a natural bond storyteller. And I don't know if you remember John Stewart when he was CEO of National Australian Bank. He, people say, oh, he's a natural storyteller. And I know there's no such thing. And, you know, even with speaking, like there's a, this, you know, it's a craft. You learn it, you sweat it out, you get polished and people go, that was amazing. But we didn't just get up and do it impromptu, you know, there's that grind. So John Stewart, we had the opportunity to interview him. And I asked him, I said, are you a natural storyteller? And he laughed. And he said, my most ad-libbed stories have been practiced for hours in front of a mirror. So at least he was honest about it. Mm-hmm. So I just want to assure people that storytelling, like any skill, can be taught and learned. And we can all get better at it. Mm-hmm. So when they work with me, they're even surprised to find out you know, there are elements that make a story work. Like it's got to have a beginning, it's got to have a middle, it's got to have an end. Sounds obvious, <laughs> I know, but we all know someone. <laughs> and typically it's a CEO who won't be quiet and just keeps going on and on and on. <laughs> I, know. I know. So I think that's our thing that we think, oh, um, it's a skill, you know? And I'm, I'm, I'm learning, I've been learning comedy for a couple of years now. So I was in the comedy showcase last year in Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And it's so surprising when we started comedy, my teacher said, all comedy starts with writing. So you're actually sitting in this darkened room writing, which blows people out of the wall shell because, you know, when a comedian delivers, it's so impromptu, it's like off the cuff. It's all of those amazing things. But there's all that thinking and drafting and design that that's sitting in the background. Same principle. And I go, why, why was I surprised? Because all good stories start with writing, you know? <laughs> so is, is humor necessary for stories? Like, are you, are you studying student? And I, I believe you're doing it at the School of Hard Knock Knocks, yeah, with Murray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Mr. Murray, yeah. yeah he's been on the show. We've, so um, I'll link to, the, to that program in the show notes. But he's been on the show, as have two or three other guests on the show as well. So... <laughs> Obviously, it's it's a it's the seminal uh, comedy workshop that you need to go to the school of. <laughs> it's a Zetgeist. I know we're the Zetgeist. Yeah. Uh, so, is is comedy necessary or important for stories? Look, personally, as a speaker, I would say yes. So, even the darkest stories can be lightened because then you get that dark and shade and light and shade and texture. Um, but I, I think you can just do a story that doesn't necessarily have to be funny. I think if you're starting with storytelling, Warwick, I would say don't also try to be make it funny. That's too many, we're pushing too many 
boundaries we're trying to, too many different skills i do a completely different masterclass which is around hoga humor which is around teaching people how you can make any presentation any message funny and i talk about hoga humor so hoga is the danish idea hoga is a danish concept of warmth intimacy connection Mm-hmm. because i felt that the just the word humor sometimes has a lot of negative connotations people mm-hmm. are really worried about being you know politically incorrect or being sexist or racist so i just needed a new label and for me the the kind of humor we use when we're speaking or presenting is humor that's very uplifting that's all inclusive mm-hmm. that's you know warm and that's what huga humor is and i do a completely separate masterclass just on that yeah 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 uh so with the the stories that you tell are they business stories like if i'm talking if i'm doing business storytelling am i talking about business because i find business stories boring i'm gonna boring i know god (laughs) (laughs) especially the sports one uh it's uh, it's almost an oxymoron you know the best success with business storytelling is when none of the stories are about business yeah what the business part is that your stories land on a business message Mm-hmm. You talk about your holiday in Fiji or you know driving your kids to school or shopping in Bunnings and people have no idea where you're going with that because it's a personal story and then bang you landed on a business message yeah, yeah. now this just begs for an example doesn't it it does yeah <laughs> okay so one of my clients Bernadette Iskander and you might have read this in the book as well um she works at QB she works in an insurance company and she wanted her team to sometimes take a step back and pause because insurance is so much about efficiency you're always just crunching through paperwork but sometimes you need to think what was happening here maybe i need to ring and speak to the customer mm. but this is the story she shared so that's her business purpose and this is the difference between business storytelling and traditional storytelling so in business storytelling you always think what's my message but of course you don't want to bang people in the head or, or you know yeah. overhead with your message So this is the story Bernadette shared. She said a few weeks ago my little 5-year-old niece Maya came tearing into the house holding an apple in each hand. And I thought this is a good time. I'm going to teach Maya how to share. I said, "Maya, can I please have one of your apples?" And she quickly took a bite out of her apple in her right hand, and quick as a flash she took a bite out of the apple in her left hand. And I was shocked. But before I could say anything, she reached out with the apple in her left hand, and she said, "Auntie, have this one. It's sweeter." I'm sharing this with you because every day we have that same opportunity. We can jump to conclusions, but every time we take a step back and pause, imagine the difference we can make for our customers. What a great story. Beautiful, isn't it? And you know, she's obviously done the work. Um it took her a whole day in the workshop, but it was worth it. Uh, but what that's what I mean with a business story. So it's a personal quite often I encourage you sometimes people can the only thing that comes to mind is business stories that's a really good safe starting space yeah but then i'd always push people to say what are some personal stories that we can use and when i'm talking personal it's stories like this i'm not talking private so that's the other fear people have that oh you know tmi too much information private so i'm a storyteller but i'm very careful about stuff that i don't share Yep. So that's your private domain but anything that's personal you know like the two apples or my teacher misasha bring them into work there's such joy there's such a freshness like people tell me i don't think i could sit through one more steve jobs story yeah because they've all been done to death you know and even with speakers i love them to bring personal stories in 
And of course, there's an art and a craft, and we can all learn how to do this well. Yeah, yeah. Wait, why do we stop telling stories? Because like kids love telling <laughs> stories, and like you know, the number of times a kid's gone, "Oh, I, can I say something?" and you go, "Yes," and then quite clearly they don't know what to say, but then they'll ramble on with this story. So we love stories as kids, but all of a sudden we stop. Why do we stop? We disconnect out of fear because as soon as we enter, enter, you know, professional, we have this false image of what professional life is like. It's very serious. It's, you know, all suited up and, you know, suit briefcases and all of that, you know, taking ourselves very seriously and um, using lots of jargon and, uh, and I think these are all masks. So because we're all afraid, you know, um, and that's why we disconnect from storytelling because it, it requires us to reveal some of our humanity to be vulnerable at some level. Because also what I find really works is not so much success stories, but failure stories. Mm. One of my clients, I did a lot of work. One of my clients came to me because they were pitching for some works. This is a large consultancy company. They were one of three in the final round and the client said to this consultancy firm, all three of the consultancy firms that were pitching, you're like so vanilla. Everybody was identical. And the client challenged them and said, enough about how successful and how amazing you are. Tell us about a time when things didn't work out, when you failed. And these are super smart, very intelligent, very driven people, you know, and they practiced hours for the pitching and and they came a little bit unstuck because, of course, they had a lot of failure stories, but they never thought about it. Mm. And that is when they decided they needed storytelling and they needed to have stories where things didn't work out because that's when you're really testing the metal of any relationship. You know, when things go, budgets are blown, timelines are missed, all of that. Yeah. So I think all of that creates that a certain tension, which always, you know, for me, knowledge, learning, all of that helps us push ourselves out of that drought and challenge ourselves to try new ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would love to keep talking about storytelling because storytelling <laughs> is fabulous, but we're running out of time. Um, if people want to get in touch with you and find out more about some of the workshops and some of the services that you offer or about your new book called Story Master, Story Mastery, How Leaders Supercharge Results with Business Storytelling, how can they get in touch with you? Just via my website, so yamininaidu.com.au and on LinkedIn as well. Great. And I'll put some links in the show notes so that you can check out how to get in touch with Yamini. Yamini, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Warwick. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of the Get More Success Show with your host, Warwick Mary. I look forward to your company next time. Thanks for listening to the Get More Success Show with Warwick Mary. Continue the conversation with other successful people over at getmoresuccess.com. That's where you'll find all the show notes as well as a link to our Facebook group that we'd love for you to join. Getmoresuccess.com is also where you'll find all the information you need to connect with me, your host, Warwick Merry. Thanks for listening and until next time, enjoy your success.